Clayton Reinhardt. I'm the director of Grow and Connect Ministries here at Fellowship Bible Church, and it's my honor to preach God's Word to you this morning. But before I do that, we are going to take a few minutes. <clears throat> We're going to take a few minutes and, and spend some time in prayer. So, uh, as most of you probably are aware, uh, our dear sister Rebecca Simcox is still in the hospital struggling with COVID pneumonia. Uh, she was moved to ICU, I believe, yesterday or the day before. And so we need to pray for her, intercede for her, for God to, uh, to turn that around and give her health and strength again. There are a few others in the congregation, <clears throat> excuse me, a few others in the congregation, uh, such as Mike Decky and others you may know of that are, uh, have serious health issues that we want to pray for. Uh, Todd and Ann Malone are still in uh, recovery from COVID as well. And then in addition to that, as Laurie touched on, there's this awful situation in Afghanistan with the Taliban taking over the country once again, and now believers in that country being at even more danger than they were before. And in addition to that, one more thing I'll, I'll toss onto the pile. Uh, as you know, about a week and a half ago, there was a large earthquake in Haiti, and uh, Haiti, of course, is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere to begin with, so anytime there is a natural disaster their devastation is, is tenfold what it would be here uh, because of the lack of infrastructure and that kind of thing. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to open up the floor. We'll have two microphones. Jamie will have a microphone, and Valerie will have one on this side. So for anyone that would just like to stand and, and pray, we can uh, hear from several of you. We'll just take a few minutes to do that. You can pray about one of the needs I've mentioned, or if there's a need in the congregation that I didn't mention, you're free to pray for that as well. So I'll open the floor now. Oh, there's one in the back there. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this opportunity to be in your house. Lord, that we can come to you with anything that's on our hearts and minds, and we praise you for being a God who can solve all problems. And Lord, I'd like to ask you to be the great physician. Lord, we know that there are so many countries that do not have um, vaccines or they do not have the hospital infrastructure they need to attack COVID. And Lord, I pray for so many of those hearts, minds, and souls, Lord, that they would be comforted by you and healed by you. And Lord, that you would be everything that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you. Lord, when things look like they're out of control, they are not out of control in your hands. Lord, we just lift up Afghanistan right now. Dear Lord, I pray for the people in Afghanistan. And Britain and London soldiers. I pray for Rebecca Simcock who has COVID and everybody who is sick and in need. And I pray for you to have mercy on the people and have strength for the people who have had the hurricane that they may have shelter and know that you are watching over them. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I agree with my sister's prayers. And Lord, we do lift up Afghanistan right now and just the turmoil that it brings and how it stirs our hearts. But Jesus, may we be your people to humble ourselves and pray and seek your face and turn from our wicked ways. And Lord, that we would see you working in a deep, deep way. 
Um, Lord, we pray for these men, those involved, women, that Jesus, first of all, we pray for those who are against you, that Jesus, you may intercede in a powerful way and draw them, draw many of them to you. And those who are seeking refuge, who are your children, Lord, we pray for your hedge protection around them and just your working. We pray for President Biden and Vice President Harris, that, Lord, you'd be with them to make wise decisions beyond themselves, that you'd be seen. We give you these things. Father, you've put on my heart a great burden for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Today they face a great trial that is coming, a trial of pain and suffering and going without, of being hunted, of being martyred for you. Pray, Father, that your will be done for them and in them and through them. That you will provide for their needs. That you will give them their daily bread. Father, forgive those that are attacking them, that kill them, that wound them that rip their families apart. Protect them from the evil one. And in the end, may they stand, stand firm. Father God, I just lift up once again our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Lord, it's such a blessing that we can meet together today in Longview on a beautiful morning and pray for them. But I also pray that in our hearts you would continue to build the trust and relationship with you that would get us through something like what's happening in Afghanistan. So I pray that we would just cling to you even when it's easy right now, so when it's hard, we have the faith that we need. In Jesus' name. Lord, we have so many things to bring to you. Rebecca Simcox, other members of the church with health issues. But just like everyone else, I would like to specifically pray for Afghanistan. But not only for their safety, but that you would use it like the persecution in Rome that caused your faith to spread like wildfire. Persecution is, is a difficult thing, yes. But remind us as well that this is how your word spreads. Let it take your word and spread it further than peace ever would. And we pray this in the only way we can. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.
Amen. All right, we have time for a couple more. Down uh, front here, about, or, uh, Jamie. God, we want to specifically lift up Rebecca to you today and just ask for your, your healing on her. We just pray that you would miraculously strengthen her, uh, lift her up, Give her the the energy to keep to keep fighting and to keep healing, and we just pray that you would strengthen her lungs, that you would allow her to breathe, that you would um, heal her from what is going on in her body, and just uh, restore her to full health. Lord, I just really want. Just help the other people in Afghanistan, and just I'd pray for Mrs. Simcox, just to give her the strength and help she needs, and for the people in Afghanistan, just to just to make sure they know that this that God is in control, and just for give them the strength they need, and to know. Oh, and and just to know that this that this is just the society that is just happening right now. Just name. All right, we'll give Lauren the last word. Dear Lord, and let us not forget Haiti, a country that's been devastated for centuries, really, just um, in darkness, so completely wrapped in darkness, Lord, and because of that, they don't move forward, and we know that, we know people who are there who are striving to bring your light into that darkness. For our own missionaries that are there, uh, Jean and Jean-Marie and others, we don't know what it will take, Lord, and why it remains so close to you, Lord, just that um, Satan's power is so strong there. I pray that you will break open hearts and minds and that your light will shine out. Amen and amen. Thank you all. <clears throat> Thank you all for your prayers. Well, you, uh, you heard the passage read, so if you're not in Matthew chapter 8, go ahead and turn there. Matthew 8, 28 to 34, which tells the story of Christ's encounter with two demon-possessed men in the country of Gadara. In the year 732, the Umayyad Caliphate was at the peak of its power. It was a large Muslim empire that, uh, it's in, by land area, was about the 10th largest empire ever to have existed in the world and uh, during the course of their expansion, they had taken over the nation of Spain. Well, in 732, the Umayyad sent an army into an area known as Aquitaine, which was the border between Spain and the kingdom of the Franks, what would become modern-day France. Obviously, they were looking to expand further into Europe. 
Well, in response to this, Charles Martel, who was the leader of the Franks at that time, gathered an army to meet them and to try to stop them. So in October 732, the Muslim army and the Frankish army met near the city of Tours, France. Each army consisted of about 20,000 men. Now the uh, great advantage that the Umayyad had was that they had mounted horsemen as well as uh, chainmail, whereas the Frankish army, all of them were on foot. And uh, I don't know if they couldn't afford or weren't skilled enough to make chainmail, but apparently they didn't have it. So they met in battle, October 732, and the Frankish army, as they were withstanding the assaults of the cavalry of the Umayyad, held rank. They held together uh, the, the way that a historian, uh, historian at the time described it was that they uh, locked together like uh, a glacier and just were like a wall against this onslaught of this Muslim army. Again and again, the cavalry charged, and they were unable to break through. And eventually, the Frankish army was able to capture and kill the leader of the Umayyad army and force them to retreat. Now, a lot of historians believe that the Battle of Tours, because the Muslim army was defeated, that that changed the course of history, that had the Umayyad Caliphate won that victory, that the, the uh, continent of Europe would have been dominated by the nation of, excuse me, by the religion of Islam rather than the religion of Christianity. Whether or not that's true, because that is a, a debatable subject among historians, but whether or not that's true, the Battle of Tours was indeed a battle bet between two titanic and powerful forces, the most powerful army on the face of the earth at that time against the fierce and disciplined Frankish army. And before the battle happened, the outcome was entirely uncertain. It was by no means a foregone conclusion. And I bring that up because that's the way that a lot of people think about the battle between God and the forces of evil. They regard God and the forces of evil both as very powerful forces, and well, maybe you know it's our hope that good will win in the end, but it's a little bit uncertain at this point. Now, as believers, of course, we know otherwise. We know that God will win in the end. We know that he will ultimately defeat all evil, because the powers of evil cannot compare to the might of the one true God. However, even as believers, when we are in the midst of a, a spiritual battle, we can find our faith in God's victory in that moment to be doubtful. Yes, I know at the end of everything, he's going to wrap it all up and solve it all and defeat evil, but I'm not so sure that he's going to defeat the devil's attacks in this case. Well, today's passage is one of those battles between God and evil. And it shows very clearly that there isn't really a contest. Unlike the Franks and the Umayyads, this outcome is never in doubt because God holds all of the power absolutely. And I pray that our Father will strengthen our faith in his power and his goodness as we look at this text. Now, right before this episode, there was just a bevy of miraculous activity on the part of Christ. So Jesus was in the town of Capernaum, and uh, the Capernaum is right on the Sea of Galilee. And while he was there, he healed a centurion's servant remotely. So demonstrating his power and control, not even needing to touch the servant or even see the servant, he just spoke the word and this centurion's servant was healed. And then later he came to Peter's house and he healed Peter's mother-in-law who was sick with a fever. And all he did there was touch her hand and the fever left her. Once word spread, everybody in Capernaum who had someone or knew someone that was sick or was troubled by uh, unclean spirits brought them to Jesus, and the Bible says that he healed and delivered every single one of them. 
After that, he got into a boat with his disciples to go across the Sea of Galilee. And then, while they were on the sea, a furious storm rose up, and the waves and the wind were threatening to sink the boat. As you know, Jesus was sleeping on the boat, probably worn out by uh, all of this ministry he had been doing. And his disciples, in a panic, wake him up and say, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And then Jesus very simply stands up and commands the winds, the waves, and the storm to stop with a simple verbal command. So at this point, I imagine that all of the disciples were in stunned admiration and amazement over who Christ is, just beginning to dawn on them over time just how great of a man they are following here. They already believed he was the Messiah, but now they're beginning to see that he is much more than just the human man that they expected the Messiah to be. As a matter of fact, you'll recall when he stilled the storm, the disciples said, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? So then, after this miraculous stilling of the storm, the boat lands on the other side in what's called the country of the Gadarenes by Matthew, and they disembark, and Jesus and his disciples encounter two demon-possessed men. Verse 28 says that these men, under the influence of demons, were actually living in a graveyard. It says they came out of the tombs to meet them. They were also driven to violent insanity. It says that they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. And the Gospel of Mark, which focuses on just one of the men, says that they were always crying out and cutting themselves. These men were in absolute misery under the control and domination of these evil spirits. Of these evil spirits. But on this day, they would meet the healer. They would meet the great King of kings and Lord of lords who would give them the deliverance that they so desperately craved. I'm going to talk about a few things that this miracle reveals to us, but first I want to answer this question, just in case it's a question in your mind. What is a demon? So there were these demon-possessed men that came after them. What is a demon? There are some that believe that ancient people used the word demon just to describe mental disorders because they couldn't understand them any other way. Others believe that the concept of demons is just a way for mankind to personify evil to help him to understand it better. But the only trustworthy source of insight into the spiritual realm that we have is Holy Scripture. And the Bible is clear that demons are actually living beings. So what is a demon? Where did they even come from? Why did God make them in the first place? Well, believe it or not, Scripture never says explicitly, here's where demons came from. So, they, so uh, the Lord left us to, to puzzle over that just a little bit. But I think the most reasonable explanation is that demons are simply fallen angels. When the devil rebelled against the rule of God before man was created, he led other angels, excuse me, he led other angelic beings to join in his uprising. They were, of course, defeated and banished from heaven. And now, since they follow the devil, they are called his angels. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said that eternal fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. These evil beings are powerful, intelligent, and wicked. They're bent on opposing God. They work to destroy, to cause pain, and to lead people to sin. Jesus said in John 10 that the thief, referring to the devil himself, only comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And of course, those who are following him, these evil creatures that follow him, are doing exactly the same. They spend their existence in hateful action against God's rule. So when you read of these men possessed by demons, it means that fallen, evil, angelic beings have taken control of them. Their actions and their words are dictated by these evil spirits, and they are powerless to disobey. 
However, I do need to add that although demons are powerful being angelic beings, they are not all-powerful. They are not all-knowing and they are not omnipresent. They are limited beings. And even though a believer can be influenced by demons, a believer cannot be demon-possessed or demonized in the way that these Gadarene men were. A believer, of course, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and bought with the blood of Christ. So you cannot be taken over by evil spirits. But we can be influenced by them. And they're constantly working to lead us to envy, greed, lust, anger, and a thousand other sins. But if you've trusted in Christ, you're in his kingdom. And you cannot be kidnapped and taken back into the kingdom of darkness, not by all the demons in existence. When these demon-possessed men ran up to Jesus, the stage was set for a battle between two titanic forces, much like the Battle of Tours. But as I said before, it wasn't really a contest whatsoever. The, the, it was a foregone conclusion before it even started. So let's get back to the text and look at a few truths that we can draw from this passage. First of all, demons recognize Jesus as the Son of God. When these two men, <clears throat> excuse me, when these two demon-possessed met Jesus, team, demon-possessed men, I'll spit it out in a second, met him, it says that they cried out to him, which means that they were just screaming and shouting when they ran up to him. And, and as an aside here, I want you to think for just a minute, how do you think the disciples reacted? Yes, that, that, I was imagining myself either A, I would be running full sprint back to the boat, or I would at the very least be standing beside, behind Jesus with my head, head, hands on his shoulders. Lord, are you taking care of this? So these two fierce, angry, insane men come running out, screaming at Jesus, and it's obvious from the dialogue that it's really the demons that are speaking through the men. And they screamed at him, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? These evil beings correctly perceive Christ's eternal identity. They know that he's the Son of God. And that isn't the first time that this happened. For instance, in Mark 1, Jesus was in a synagogue in Capernaum one Sabbath. When a demon-possessed man cried out almost exactly the same thing, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And then listen to this. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And when the people of Capernaum brought the sick and the demon possessed to Jesus, Mark 1.34 says that he cast out many demons and he would not permit them to speak because they knew him. And he didn't want the testimony of his identity to be coming from the speech of these evil beings. These twisted evil spirits know exactly who Jesus is. They recognize him as the eternal son of God. They once worshipped him. They once served him. They once obeyed him in joy and gladness. And even though now Christ has divine nature, join, excuse me, human nature joined to his divine nature, they still recognize him immediately because they can see and perceive in the spiritual realm and not just the physical realm. This is the Son. This is the only begotten of the Father. This is the Holy One of God. They recognize Him and they tremble because they're in the presence of pure, unblemished, undiluted holiness. They're in the presence of the one true God, one far more powerful than they. They know exactly who Jesus is, much more than an ordinary man. In addition to that, demons know that Jesus will ultimately defeat them. Look again at verse 29. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What time were they talking about? Before the time. They're talking about the time of final judgment. 
when the Lord Jesus banishes all evil from his world and consigns them to a place of torment. Revelation 20 describes the end of the devil like this. The devil was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, prophet, prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Since demons are followers of the devil, they will experience the exact same fate, banishment forever in torment in the lake of fire. The, the Bible describes it as a place of torment, and the demons know that the day is coming when that will be their home forever. Now, I did, this thought did come to me as I was studying this passage. How do demons know that this is their fate? Revelation wasn't written just yet, so I'm sure demons can read, but they couldn't have read that at this point. My suspicion is that long ago, God told them of his plan for the created order to destroy all of his enemies and renew all things. <clears throat> so even before the book of Revelation was revealed to the apostle John, demons knew that their doom was certain. They knew that the Lamb of God would finally defeat them. And here in Matthew 8, they're expressing fear that Jesus has come to cause them some pain before that time. They know, yes, one day you are going to banish us, banish us in torment forever, but are you coming here now to cause us pain at this time? In his account in Luke, excuse me, in the account of Luke, it says that they begged Jesus not to send them to the abyss, which would have been a place of imprisonment to hold them until the time they were banished to the lake of fire. They were scared that he would lock them up to await their sentence and that they would no longer be free to operate up until that final day. These evil spirits have no doubt about Christ's final victory over them. They didn't challenge his power. They didn't taunt him. They didn't talk big. They showed that their final defeat was absolutely certain in their minds. And just as the disciples wondered what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him, I think it's fair for us to sit back and reflect on how magnificent this man Jesus is. That even demons, the devil's angels, are completely sure that he will defeat them in the end. <clears throat> when you and I look around us and we see evil in triumph, for instance, in Afghanistan, as demonic people are taking control of the nation, it can tempt us to be shaken in our faith. Is Christ going to win? Is God still in control? Violence and immorality and corruption fill the earth. I regularly hear of new scandals of abuse within churches. Abuses by people in power and sinful attempts to cover up those abuses. The devil and his angels are helping to stir up all of those things and they rejoice to see sin and destruction. And it can wear on our souls as we consider these things and as new news comes to us each day of what appears to be the triumph of evil. And we need to learn a lesson from the, from the behavior of these demons. And that lesson is that there is no doubt Jesus will win. God is still in control. Everything is still following God's great plan for the ages. And the success of God's plan doesn't depend on your strength or your wisdom or your faithfulness. Praise be to God for that. No matter how many well-known Christians turn from the faith, no matter how many churches drift from healthy doctrine, no matter how many believers fall into grievous public sin, Christ will build his church and he will establish his kingdom. Even the forces of evil know this, so they fight with raging hatred while they can. 
My brother or sister, be strengthened in your faith in Christ today as you're reminded that Jesus will defeat all that is evil in the universe. Nothing that, that can happen can change or take away from that fact. Nothing that happens can take away from the fact of Christ's perfect life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection, and his glorious ascension. The work of redemption has been done. Right before Christ gave up his spirit on the cross, you will recall that after absorbing the wrath of God, he, said, he shouted, it is finished. He had accomplished the work of redemption, and nothing can ever change that, no matter what you or I face, and no matter what the devil and his angels do to try to stop it. Christ has done it. He has won the victory, and he will set all things right, and he will make everything new. The ultimate defeat of evil is just as certain as the Lord's victory on the cross, which is now in our past. And just as the concerted effort of innumerable evil, evil beings can't stop the Lord from accomplishing his purposes, your sins and your mistakes can't stop the Lord from accomplishing his purpose. Praise God that he is greater than all. He is greater than demons. He is greater than our sins. He is greater than our foolishness. The last truth I want to look at in this passage is that Jesus has authority over demons. It's one thing to know that Jesus will ultimately defeat the devil and his angels, but again, what about the here and now? You and I are facing the devil and his angels here and now. We're being tempted here and now. We're being attacked here and now. Look at verses 31 and 32 again. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. There was a large herd of pigs nearby. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. In Mark's description of this story, he adds the detail that sparked the demon's request. Jesus had said when he met the demon-possessed men, Come out of him, you unclean spirit. So the demons knew they had to obey this command. There was no question or debate about whether or not they would leave these tortured men. Again, there was just not a contest. Jesus gave a command, and the demons recognized that they had to obey. So in desperation, the demons asked Jesus to send them into a large herd of pigs nearby. Now, I don't know why they wanted to possess the pigs. It may be that it is the nature of these spirits to possess, to inhabit. Maybe they figured by at least controlling animals, they could continue their campaign of, of destruction and evil in one way or another. Whatever the reason, it's clear that Jesus had total authority over them. They had to ask his permission where to go next because they knew they could not stay in the souls of these men that they were inhabiting. They knew that because Jesus had told them to leave, they would have to leave. There was no fight that they could put up. Now, I want you to think about this question. What had Jesus done to earn authority over demons? It's clear they recognized his authority. Come out of him. Okay, we're going to have to leave. Please let us go into these pigs instead of just going out into the world. Why? Why did Jesus have authority over demons? What had he done to earn that authority? Well, I submit to you that Jesus had actually done nothing to earn that authority. He had that authority by the very right of who he was. Colossians 1, 15 and 16, I think, gives us the right answer. It says, he, speaking of Christ, he is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn being the most preeminent in all creation. For by him, all things 
were created. And just in case we miss that he's really meaning all things, the Apostle Paul then expands on that. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This term, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, refers to different classes of angels that uh, the people of that time understood the hierarchy of the angels to be, which would, of course, include the beings that were inhabiting these two demon-possessed men. Jesus has authority over demons. <clears throat> Jesus has authority over demons because he created them. And that is why when they saw him, they knew exactly who he was. He was the one that brought them into being. And therefore, of course, the one who could snap them out of existence should he choose. That means also that Christ has authority over their leader, the devil. All things in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, Christ created. Demons respond to Christ's authority because they have no other choice. Now consider for just a minute what that means for children of God. That means that you can't be troubled by any evil spirit beyond what the Lord allows. I know that we all wish... <clears throat> I know that we all wish that it meant that we would never be tempted or disturbed or distressed by the activity of demons, but that isn't the case. For the present time, the Lord does allow demons to operate, but only within the limits he sets. I believe it was Martin Luther that used to refer to the devil as God's devil, because ultimately God owns him and all of his angels, and God determines whether or not they will be free to operate and what they will be free to do. That's why Paul could say in Romans 8 that not even angelic beings can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because even demons must submit to his authority. Ultimately, this incident shows us that Jesus is Lord over the spirit world. For those of you that were here last week, we looked at John chapter 2 where Jesus changed water into wine. And that was a demonstration that Jesus was Lord over nature, Lord over the natural world. Now he's showing the, uh, he is also Lord over the unseen or supernatural world. And what a glorious truth that is. What comfort we can draw from that. What encouragement, what security it is to know that Jesus is Lord over the spirit world. However, not everyone reacts to this truth that way. Look at verses 33 and 34 again. Every time I read this, it surprises me. I mean, I know it's coming, but it still feels like this, this just doesn't make sense to me. What, look with me. The herdsmen fled. The guys that were watching the pigs, they saw the pigs run into the ocean. They saw what had happened. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, yes, man, this guy has come here. He has delivered these two fierce demon-possessed men. They're in their right mind. He is able to command spirits. Here he is, what a magnificent man. And the whole city goes out to meet him. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. It baffles me. Every time I read that, it baffles me. They begged him to leave their region. The healer, the king, the deliverer, this man who is more than a man is here. And they begged him to leave their region. It's interesting that Matthew actually uses the exact same word, begged, from the townspeople that he used from the demons. The demons begged Jesus that they would be sent into pigs. The townspeople begged Jesus that he would leave their region. 
I think he's highlighting the fact that the Gadarenes' attitude was evil, just like the demons' attitude. Both groups wanted Jesus to be far away from them. Maybe the crowd had been stirred up by the people who owned the pigs, and they were surely enraged at their economic loss. Maybe they wanted Jesus to go because they were afraid that he would cause more damage. We don't know what this guy can do or what he will do. And it may indeed have been that. A lot of commentators believe that it was really greed and materialism that uh, motivated them to beg Christ to leave them alone. But I think it's actually more likely that they were fearful of being in the presence of such a powerful being. They saw that those two men had been delivered. These two men that they could not control. Mark, Luke, one of the other Gospels, mentions that they were often chained and bound and the demons strengthened them such that they could just tear the chains apart or break their bonds. So they knew that Jesus was able to deliver. They knew that he was able to heal. But more importantly, they were probably thinking about his power over unclean spirits and were quaking in fear at what that might mean for them. The violent death of the pigs was tangible evidence that the evil spirits had left the men. And there was Jesus, the cause of it all. I think that the people of Gadara recognized a divine visitation, and therefore they felt their own sinfulness. In Luke chapter 5, Simon Peter, before he was one of Christ's followers, saw Jesus perform a miracle, and it says that he fell at Jesus' feet and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He was feeling the weight of his sin because now he was in the presence of this pure and holy man. The Gadarenes witnessed a miracle and undoubtedly felt the same weight of sin that Peter felt. But instead of running to Christ to fall on his mercy, they chose to do what was easy and comfortable, beg him to leave and stop troubling them. I don't want you around here stirring up my conscience. I don't want you to remind me that I am separated from God. I don't want you to remind me of my sin and possibly coming judgment. Leave us. There was the author of life right in their midst, ready to minister to them, and they begged him to leave. I would encourage you, I would plead with you to not make the mistake that the Gadarenes made. It is true that a holy and all-powerful God is among us, and it is true that his wrath against sin burns hot. But that same God has offered himself as the penalty, excuse me, as the substitution for us. He has offered himself to suffer the wrath that we so richly deserve. Jesus died for you and for me, and then he rose again. And now he offers life and eternal, excuse me, eternal life and forgiveness to all who will trust in him. After service ends, there will be people up here at the front of the stage who would just love to talk to any of you about your standing with God. If you're wondering what all this means, salvation in Christ, or how can I come to know this great Savior? How can I be delivered from my sin? They would love to be able to talk to you and pray with you about that. So keep that in mind if that is you this morning, if you don't know Christ. If you are a believer, let this passage encourage you. Excuse me, let this passage encourage you in your battle with the evil one. Author David Pallison said this, Mundane evil is the devil's business. There are times when believers do encounter the devil in this kind of form, when he is very visible, enraged, a very dramatic display. 
But most of the time, by far the greatest majority of the time, he comes to us in much more mundane ways, whispering temptations in our ears, drawing us to follow after greed or lust or anger. He will tempt you to lie, to doubt God's word, to steal and a thousand other sins. And it may seem at times like a tsunami of temptation. Maybe you're in one of those times. You can be encouraged that Jesus is the Lord of the spirit world. And he will not allow the devil and his angels to go beyond the limits that he has set for them in your life as he works to conform you to his image. Nothing that they can do can undo what Jesus has done for you. Nothing that they can do can undo that he has purchased you and he has forgiven you and he has brought you into his kingdom and into the family of God forever. Since Jesus is Lord of the spirit world, you can stand in his authority to fight against spiritual attacks. When you hear the devil's lies, you can rebuke him with the truth of Jesus Christ. When he says something like, God doesn't love you or he would have healed you, you can point to the cross and say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loved me so much that he died for me. You're a liar. When he says, you can't be a child of God, you've sinned too much and you've been too ungodly, you can tell him that Christ died for the ungodly and that Christ's sacrifice is greater than any sin. You can fight against doubt and despair and fear and anger and lust because Jesus is Lord over the spirit world. And I know that you and I will fall into temptation a thousand times a thousand in our lives. But even in those times, we can rest in the security of Jesus Christ. That even when we are falling, even when we are failing, even when we are giving in to temptation, the devil is not pulling us out of the hands of Christ. He is not able. Christ is still the one who is Lord over the spirit world. He is still the master of your fate, and he will keep you forever. Jesus has dominion over the devil and his angels, and he will never let you go. Most, if not all, of your battle, <clears throat> as I mentioned, will be far less dramatic than Christ's encounter in Matthew 8. But your battles are just as real. Remember that you have an enemy who wants to destroy you. But as a believer, you are on the victorious side. You're fighting under the banner of the victorious King of Kings. And it isn't just a matter of holding on. It isn't just a matter of defending yourself. God has also given you the power and authority to push into the darkness, to bring the light of Christ into dark places. When you love your enemies, when you pray for those who persecute you, you are fighting the devil and his angels. When you show mercy or kindness or patience, you are fighting the devil and his angels. When you tell someone about the truth of Jesus Christ, you are fighting the devil and his angels. You are pushing back the darkness and bringing light to this world. When you pray, when you study scripture, when you gather with the body of Christ to worship, you are fighting the devil and his angels. And I guarantee you that ultimately you and I will be victorious. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged today. That although we are in a war, we are in a war that has already been won because Jesus is Lord over the spirit world. Let's all stand. Now, as I mentioned, there will be people up here at the front who would love to talk to you and pray with you, not just about the matter of salvation. If there is some other issue you're facing, some burden, please come and share that. Don't walk out of here as unburdened, as, excuse me, as burdened as you came in. Be sure you share that with someone. So as I go to prayer, I'll ask the prayer team to come forward. Gracious God, in the name of your Son, 
the Holy One of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he who can command spirits, he who is Lord over the spirit world. In his name, we come to you, Lord God, and we praise you. We praise you for rescuing us from the domain of darkness. We praise you that you are in charge, that you are in control. We praise you, God, for loving us with an unfailing love. We praise you for supporting us, guiding us, and providing for us. And Lord, I ask this morning for your encouragement, for your joy to well up within us as we rest in your strength, as we rest in the security of knowing you. And God, I will add once again a prayer for our dear sister, Rebecca. I pray, God, that you would heal her body, whether by miracle or medicine. I pray that you would turn back the advance of whatever is going on in her lungs, that you would give health, that you would give strength and recovery. And Lord God, I also pray for the people of Afghanistan and Haiti, that you would push back the darkness there, that you would use what looks like the victory of evil, that you would use that instead to spread your good news, that you would use it to reap a mighty harvest of souls. God, we are trusting in you. We are clinging to you. You are our only hope, and we love you and praise you for it. Today, I ask for a special measure of grace in everyone who has gathered here, everyone who is watching online. And I thank you again for your mercy and kindness. Amen and amen. God bless you, my friends. You're free to go.